I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. Welcome. Hey, Jim. Hey, everybody. Um, you're all most welcome to The Other Hand. Uh, a few things we want to talk about today. First, it's going to be me talking about some of my recent writing, in particular a blog post on the other hand, our Substack website. For those listeners of this podcast that just listen to the podcast, a gentle reminder that we also write quite a lot of stuff, both Jim and myself, and the most recent piece on the Substack website, uh, the other hand, is a piece about experts asking the question, why experts lie? And I just want to spend two minutes running through that because I know a lot of people won't have seen that if they're just listeners. And uh, from the reaction I got, I think it, it, it did strike a chord with a lot of people. It was inspired by another Substack writer, um, a brilliant writer called Noah Smith in the States, who's very prominent on, on Substack. And he wrote a piece called, Why, I think it was called Why Do Experts Lie? Or When Experts Lie, something like that. And he used two big examples of experts lying, um, only in the sense that people, these experts were well-intentioned and tried to achieve a certain outcome by telling a fib right at the very beginning. The first one he used was Anthony Fauci in particular, but other health professionals, including the World Health Organization, a year ago when they were talking about mask wearing. And these kinds of people, these kinds of organizations encourage people not to wear masks giving the very distinct impression that the reason why they were recommending against mask wearing was that they didn't work. And that turned out to be quite false in that all of the evidence piled up subsequently that mask wearing can be a very useful uh, addition to the armory against COVID. And Fauci and others eventually seemed to admit that the reason why they 
shall we say, dissembled um, in the first instance, is that they were very worried that uh, ordinary people would get hold of masks and cause even greater shortages um, for PPE equipment. You might remember that this time last year there was a great global scramble for these things. So they created the wrong impression about masks with, with the good intention of trying to protect frontline workers and their access to, to, um, to masks. But of course, when you tell a fib, any kind of fib, often it leads to unintended consequences, no matter how well-intentioned. And the unintended consequence of putting people off wearing masks is that it just gave plenty of ammunition to the anti-mask nutters, who to this day claim that mask wearing is just some part of some great conspiracy and that we don't need to wear them and all that kind of Looney Tune nonsense. So it kind of backfired on them. And Smith's point, which I would agree with totally, was that uh, they should have told the truth from, from the get-go and encourage people to wear masks where they could, but please don't go out and panic by these things because we need them for frontline healthcare workers. And that arguably would have had a better outcome than putting a lot of people off wearing masks via the anti-mask nutters. The second lie that Smith referred to was a favorite of mine, actually, that I've worried about for, for decades, which is the stuff to do with free trade and the economics profession. Um, if, you, if you scratch an economist, you'll find a free trader. Uh, most, if not all, economists will say the best outcome for any trade is free trade, tariff-free um, and all other impediments removed to, to free trade and will all be made better off. Uh, this, up to a point, is the truth, but um, the way in which this one is a big lie is that it's not the whole truth because we've known since, well, for centuries, from the first early models of trade and our first experiences with with tariffs and tariff reductions is that free trade creates lots of winners, absolutely, but it also creates losers. Um, whole countries can be losers. We now think that the United States lost as a result of China, China's accession to the World Trade Organization. But in particular, individual workers and industries within a country can often be the losers. And economists have been very, very reluctant to talk about the losers from free trade, mostly because they worry, they fret, that they, it too gives ammunition to the nutcases. And the nutcases in this particular set of circumstances are the um, anti-free trade merchants who want to put tariffs on everything and protect domestic industries and ignore all the huge benefits that can flow from free trade. And, and, and like the first lie, this one backfired. And it, ultimately, it just ended up with Donald Trump. And that the thing that the um, free trade economists feared actually came to pass. And so Donald Trump had his trade war with China and was a protectionist president. So again, an example of a big expert lie, perhaps well-intentioned, backfiring. And again, the argument is they should have told the truth. They should have trusted the wider body politic, the wider public with the truth about winners and losers and come up with policies to uh, help the losers from world from free trade rather than pretending that these um, harms didn't exist. I, in my piece, which I, in which I rehearsed these arguments, I added a third one, which has particular resonance in Ireland, but also in other countries, um, which are the FIBS experts have been telling, um, partly by omission, partly quite deliberately, when it comes to the evidence that we've had since the very start of the pandemic, not just recently, about the role of outdoors versus indoor activities and in general ventilation and how important it is. All of the restrictions that we've been placed under in Ireland and the UK and other countries have 
seemed to be based on the idea that all activities, wherever they take place, carry roughly the same risks, despite the fact that that simply isn't true. Um, why did the experts do this? Well, from what they've been saying, we can only infer it because they don't admit to telling any fibs, of course, they would deny it. But I think the reason why we've been told that outdoor and indoor activities carry similar risks, or at the very least, we've been told that we can't do both indoor and outdoor activities, is because the experts are frightened that if they told the truth, what would happen next? And what would happen next is that, in a sense, outdoors becomes indoors, in that we, we, we go into changing rooms, we go for a glass of wine in somebody else's house afterwards, and that we end up indoors. Um, I think that this has led to a lack of trust in experts because it's become blindingly obvious, not least with the result of publication of a big, big survey in Ireland the other day, in which it was said that 0.1% of outdoor activities have led to COVID. It's important to stress it's not zero risk being outside, but it is very, very small relative to inside. And so by not trusting us with the truth, and by the truth, I think that they should have said right at the very beginning, Indoors and outdoors are very different. Nothing is zero risk, but the high risk stuff is going into an unventilated space with somebody with COVID. If you do that, chances are you're going to get it. If you play golf with them or play tennis, there's still a chance you're going to get it, but it's much, much lower. Um, and so please uh, do, if you go outdoors, be sensible, socially distance, wear masks if you're in close proximity to anybody and just be sensible. I think that health messaging would have landed um, and would have produced a better health outcome than the one that we've got. So these, we presume, well-intentioned medics trying to control our behavior outside, I think the message has backfired. And what we've ended up with um, in countries like Ireland and the UK is that now we don't trust them. They didn't trust us, so we didn't trust them. And so there is a backlash. And so we've had the worst possible outcome, as with the first two outcomes. We no longer trust what the experts tell us. This got a lot of feedback, Jim, most of it positive, um, some of it quite nuanced. I don't know what you thought of it. I think you read it, didn't you? I did read it, Chris. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And I guess the way in which you joined the dots at the end with the recent um, issues you describe in Ireland over the outdoor activities um, certainly resonated with me. And um, I definitely think that a lot of sensible people can see through these lies and then react very negatively to them and you end up with a, a totally undesirable unintended consequence from the lies that have been told in the first place and uh, I definitely think that that sort of narrative and, and you, you mentioned the outdoor activities but if you go further back we've seen lots of similar type claims made over the last 12 months and I think a lot of them have backfired very spectacularly and um, the consequences have not been positive for in, in terms of compliance and so on. Um, I'm minded, Chris, of um, a, another area, I guess, that has over the last few years been discussed a lot at a global level. And the typical response here in Ireland was that, you know, these are not facts that people are telling lies to justify the point they're trying to make. And that relates to Ireland's corporation tax structures. Um, back in 2018, I was reading um, Bob Woodward's book, Fear, um, about the Trump presidency. Um, um, and I have to say, I thought it was a dreadful book. I, I read it over, I didn't enjoy it. 
Um, and I've found that with a lot of Woodward's books over the years. I've read them and haven't really enjoyed them. I found them turgid, et cetera. Um, and I suppose it, it goes to prove that, you know, if, if you get a reputation for staying in, getting up early in the morning, you can stay in bed till lunchtime every day. I think it's the same with Woodward. He has created such a reputation that he's, um, that anything he produces is generally acclaimed by people. But anyway, that's an aside. But in that book, Fear, uh, there was a description early in the book of a meeting between Gary Cohn, who was then the president of Goldman Sachs, um, about to be appointed head of the Council of Economic Advisors by Trump. But he was inside Trump's, the Oval Office, and they were discussing various issues. And one issue that came up was around corporation tax. And Cohn was describing how, as president of Goldman Sachs, his company had made a lot of money over the years in facilitating what he described as inversion deals. And these inversion deals are where a corporation relocates its legal home to a low tax country um, and retaining some operation and management in the subsidiary in the high tax country. And he mentioned, and that is a way of avoiding paying corporation tax, okay? But he mentioned Ireland and Bermuda as two countries that fitted the bill here. And I remember that struck me very forcefully at the time because it said to me that Ireland is now very much a target for this global corporate tax debate. And we've had lots of protestations from various people in this country that none of this is true, uh, that Ireland's tax system is totally transparent, fair, et cetera, et cetera. But that, reading those comments from Gary Cohn, it just struck me, it doesn't really matter what the truth is here. What really matters is the perception that is out there that Ireland is using its corporation tax system to basically steal revenues from other countries. And I think where this is really um, important is the, well, it's important in a lot of different ways. But I, I have always felt that, you know, people here have argued, you know, why are the French, why are the Germans so preoccupied with Ireland's corporation tax system that surely if Ireland is forced to increase its corporate tax rate, that it will just cost foreign direct investment into the European Union rather than benefiting France or Germany. But I, I've come to think in recent years that a lot of this is down to the fact that countries like France, Germany, uh, the United States, countries like that, aging populations with significant implications for future expenditure on health, um, on pensions, on care for older people, and also older populations cause the tax base to diminish. So a lot of countries are facing these problems with significant implications for future expenditure. And yet, and, and sorry, if they perceive a country like Ireland to be basically stealing their tax revenues, they are going to be pissed off about it. So I can see the economic justification for what they're saying, but it has certainly been ramped up over the last week. And everything that I felt about reading Gary Cohn's thing has really um, come into the public discourse over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I totally agree, Jim, because th that kind of relates back to what I was saying earlier, the uh, the stuff about experts and telling lies. And I think what you're describing there, are, yes, there are plenty of experts around the world who tell lies about corporation tax. And that's a particular example of expert lying. And I think 
the reason underlying it is less well-intentioned and more that this is where you have to be very careful about listening to expert opinion and when they become lobbyists for a particular point of view. Um, and the other aspect to how anybody, expert or otherwise, can tell lies is that they just get something wrong. Because one of the ways, one of the many aspects of the global corporation tax debate is just how phenomenally complicated it is and how many instant experts there are. Taxation generally is complicated, not just uh, corporation tax, but corporation tax in particular. So I do think a lot of people get it wrong. Um, and a lot of experts are, in fact, lobbyists. And it's very important to spot the difference. An example of what I mean about getting it wrong is... Um, one of Ireland's domestic experts and real experts on the global corporation tax debate is an um, economics professor from Cork, um, Seamus Coffey, who blogs um, periodically a lot about uh, corporation tax. And he took issue with um, one of Ireland's online, online news sites. Uh, you've probably heard of it, Jim, The Currency, the other day, in which they were talking about, and they had some headlines about particular companies avoiding tax altogether. And he did some detailed blogs um, showing how this headline at least was, was somewhat incorrect. Um, the currency wasn't being disingenuous. It was just simply, with, I think anyway, from reading the, these exchanges, um, making a mistake because it is so fearsomely complicated. Another aspect of the corporation tax debate is, is how we often end up talking about things that used to happen that don't happen anymore. You mentioned inversion. As I understand it, that's pretty much over now. Is that right? Yes, pre pretty much that the government has moved to get rid of stuff like the uh, double Irish and the, those various inversion possibilities that were put in place. Uh, but, I, but I think where the debate has shifted to over the last couple of years is, you know, the inversion deals are pretty much, as you say, seen now as in the rear view mirror. But if you... Think back to July 2016. Um, I was the Central Statistics Office has a quarterly briefing um, every time it publishes the quarterly national accounts. Okay, in other words, the GDP numbers, and it talks to it gives a briefing to economists and journalists explaining what was going on. And I remember in early July 2016 sitting in this press conference, um, it's normally a very quiet affair. You don't get too many emotions um, and there's rarely any dramatic news. But the person from the CSO stood up at the beginning and said, as a sort of an aside, oh, by the way, we before I talk to you about uh, the latest quarterly growth numbers, just to let you know that we have revised the 2015 growth numbers and GDP was previously reported at something like six and a half percent. We have now revised it up to 26%. And I remember um, for normally state boring economists sitting in this sort of venue, um, you rarely get any sort of reaction. But I remember looking around the room, there was an absolute look of shock and horror. People were totally bewildered how a GDP number could be re revised up from over 6% to over 26%. And Within minutes, Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate, had tweeted leprechaun economics. And that then, you know, created a, a series of events that eventually ended up with the CSO devising a new measure of economic activity that we discussed in an earlier podcast about GNI star, gross national income star, 
which tries to strip out this nebulous stuff. But what happened in 2015 was that, and well, a number of things happened, but one of the key drivers of that growth number, the CSO reported correctly based on Eurostat statistical methods. So there was nothing wrong with the number. But why? So the economy did effectively um, increase by over a quarter in, one th in, in a 12-month period. And um, that, of course, is impossible. But what actually happened was a number of multinationals, uh, a small number, and we cannot mention, and the CSO um, would never mention their names for confidentiality reasons, but a small number of multinationals moved their intellectual property assets into Ireland for tax reasons. And they add to the GDP base of the country and have to be included. But they bear no relationship whatsoever. But um, that really was the day, I believe, that Ireland was really targeted as a corporation tax haven, or at least that was the perception that was created out there. And in the New York Times over the last couple of days, Paul Krugman has taken another stab at this. And this comes in the context of the Biden corporation tax proposals and Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, um, issued her own similar proposals earlier uh, this week. But Krugman was writing about this, but the title of his article was Biden, Yellen and War on Leprechauns. And in his article, he actually refers back to his description of Ireland um, as leprechaun economics back in 2016. And he said, thankfully, uh, the Irish have a sense of humor, have a sense of humor about themselves. But he then proceeded to have a real go at our corporate tax structure. And um, his, his basic premise was that bribing corporations with low taxes is not the way to create jobs. So uh, I think it was a very powerful piece. And it, it's a piece, certainly anybody, because Krugman is a very influential person, former uh, sorry, a Nobel laureate, um, and he, he got his Nobel laureate on the basis of work on international trade and international geography. So he's a serious, serious economist, and um, he would have been dismissed by the Trump presidency as a left-wing nutter, but for the Biden presidency, Krugman would be much more mainstream. So he's going to be, they, they will pay attention to him. So I think that we in Ireland really, really need to be aware of this challenge coming down the track. One of the ways in which I think people do misunderstand this corporate, this corporation tax debate is that um, a lot of it has got to do with the inadequacies of the US tax code. It's actually got, got less to do with countries like Ireland than first meets the eye. Of course, the Irish tax rules do, do play a big role here. And that uh, it's the U.S. as much as anybody else that needs to get its tax laws in order. The, the, the second thing that I think needs to be stressed is the way in which all that, you called it intellectual property. In a way, it was just a movement of, of um, uh, a capital stock, if you like. In the old days, it would have been plant and machinery. These days, it's just ideas. And it's the ideas, the software, if you like, the digital stuff that uh, the patents and all these sorts of things from which these companies earn royalties. And it's where they placed this intellectual property from which they earn their profits, or at least profits as declared in their own accounts, their own profit and loss account, 
they were previously declaring them in zero tax jurisdictions. I'm putting this somewhat simplistically. And it was the ending of things like, but not exclusively, the double Irish that ended, meant that they had to, to shift. Another thing that needs to be remembered about the inadequacies of the US tax code is that a lot of these taxes that aren't paid, yes, they're not paid forever, but a lot of them are also just deferred taxes. And that if, if the, it's the way that the US corporations keep them offshore, and it's only when they bring them back home, when they repatriate them, that they are taxed. So in some ways, these are tax deferral rather than tax avoidance strategies. And I only mention these things to, to illustrate just how phenomenally complicated they are and how fast the debate is moving on. But the debate is moving on, and certainly media like the Financial Times are covering this extensively. Today, yesterday, and the day before, there's tons of stuff that one could read about this. And it's all coming from the Biden proposals. And some of the things that he's done have been very obvious in that he wants these corporations to pay more tax. Um, and in particular, he wants them to pay more tax that they owe to the United States. But one of the more surprising things that he's done is that he seems to be floating a proposal that the taxes that these companies pay don't just go to the American Treasury, that they will be based in part at least on where the sales of these organizations take place. Because one of the things that these companies say is that it doesn't actually matter where we sell our stuff, it's where we declare our profits. And if we're American companies, we should be paying American taxes. Biden seems to be offering a concession, which I suspect will be very difficult for him to get through Congress to allow a sales-based thing, which is something the EU has always wanted. Um, tax the profits where they actually arise, even if you are American. So this is an American issue more than anything else. That American companies do this. British companies, by and large, don't. Um, you don't find big British multinational companies, by and large, headquartered or basing a lot of their intellectual property in Ireland because the, the tax codes in Britain wouldn't let them do it. So, so that there are lots of nuances and um, lots of technicalities, and it is fiendishly complicated. So, when, so the first health warning we would give is that when you see somebody opining on this, just be very careful about whether they are a neutral observer, whether they do actually do know what they're talking about, and whether or not they are actually a lobbyist. That, that may be the case, Chris. You know, it, it may be um, an issue to do with the US tax system rather than anything else. But um, I, I said earlier that the perception that's being created, you know, is what should will drive the reality. And the perception out there is leading to very concrete measures. Okay, at an EU level, we have this CCCTB, which is called the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base Agenda. At an OECD level, we have what's called the BEPS proposals, which is base erosion profit shifting. Uh, we have proposals for digital taxes. We have Biden's tax plans with a minimum corporation tax rate. And then we have what Yellen was talking about earlier this week. And Ye Yellen and Biden are obviously two parts of the same thing. But there is a massive global tax agenda gathering momentum. And, and that momentum has been given a serious, serious boost by the election of Biden and what he's trying to do. But I, what basically what these proposals in a nutshell are trying to achieve is to make sure that corporations pay tax. At least this is how I interpret it. Um, and I totally um, take your point that this is incredibly complicated and you really would need to be an expert like Seamus Coffey in UCC 
uh, to really understand it. But as I see it, what this is intended to do is to make sure that global corporations pay tax in the jurisdiction where the real economic real economic activity occurs rather than where the balance sheet resides. And from an Irish perception uh, or pr perspective, excuse me, we can argue, well, our corporation tax system is fine, it's, it's transparent, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is that these agendas are now being driven at a global level and they will have significant implications for Ireland. And the, the only question is, and I'd like your view on this in a second, uh, once I eventually shut up, uh, the the only question really is, or, or, or sorry, I suppose the, my view would be that for the Irish economy, FDI is incredibly important. You know, 258,000 people employed directly, another 210,000 are there about indirect employees resulting from that employment in FDI companies. So you're talking about nearly a half million jobs dependent on foreign direct investment. Um, and almost 100,000 of those are in the ICT area, the information communications technology area, 34,000 in pharma um, and, and so on. So it's a very important part of the Irish labour market, but it's an even more important part of the corporate tax take in this country. Last year, we collected 11.8 billion in corporation tax. Okay, big, the, the largest amount of corporation tax by a mile that we've ever collected in this country. And in fact, in the last three or four years, there has been this step upward adjustment in corporation tax receipts because of that leprechaun economics phenomenon. But if you look at the breakdown of those corporation tax receipts, the top 10 companies, and obviously the revenue commissioners will not name those companies, but I think we all know who they are. Uh, they're all foreign-owned multinationals. They account for 40% of net receipts, and the top 100 companies account for 70%. And if you delve further, you will see that foreign multinationals pay 77% of corporation tax take in Ireland. Irish multinationals of which there are only a few, pay just 7%. And then the rest of the non-multinational sector, smaller business, etc., pay just 16%. So the point I'm trying to make is that foreign direct investment is really important to the Irish economy. It is really important to employment. It's really important to regional economic activity. And it's really important for tax take. So all of this now is under threat. Um, I don't fully understand how real that threat is, how big the threat is. So I'd like your views on that, Chris, if I may. Yeah, well, the numbers involved, whichever way you, you, you slice and dice this, um, are huge. And you, we mentioned royalty payments on the basis of intellectual property. And um, I'm taking these numbers from something Seamus Coffey that we've mentioned a couple of times already. He wrote recently about what these royalty payments have been doing. The payments that U.S. companies in, in Ireland made to uh, their parent back in the United States right up until 2019, just a couple of years ago, were very steady at about six to eight billion a year. And then when all of this intellectual property was transferred to Ireland, they went up 
to 9 billion in Q1 2020 alone. So they exceeded the previous annual figures in one quarter. And it's possible that in 2020, last year, the, the total could approach 40 billion of royalty payments from US companies back to the United States. That, that's a staggering figure in relation to anything. It actually does affect, in a very small way, US GDP, not just Irish GDP. The, the, the order of magnitude is, is, is tiny compared to that original uplift that you mentioned. But these huge distortions to international flows, whether they're just bookkeeping entries or real flows, is another separate um, arcane debate, is very important. And it seems to me blindingly obvious that one thing or another, because these numbers are now so big and the resulting suspicion that tax revenue take wherever it is, is, is too low, um, means that um, change is coming. Um, I wonder about how much change is coming, because if these companies are going to be paying a lot more tax going forward, I would have thought the stock market would have spotted this already and have reacted. But you will notice that as we speak, the US stock market is at an all-time high and it doesn't seem to care. So it either thinks that this is going to take an awfully long time to make an impact on actual reported profits or that it's not going to happen at all. So I offer that as one answer to your question, Jim. How is this likely to change? The stock market is saying not very much. And I think the stock market could be wrong, but we have to respect that message. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on, Biden may have difficulty getting through these measures through Congress. And we must also note that the, the various uh, BEPS type um, proposals that have been lumbering on for years have been lumbering on for years so that they will take time. But it strikes me that from a planning perspective, Ireland should now start planning for lower corporation tax taxes going forward and a much more difficult environment to a, both attracting FDI and horrifyingly maybe thinking about keeping the FDI, the foreign direct investment that it's got already. You said earlier on that a lot of this stuff doesn't lead to jobs, but some of it does. There are an awful lot of people employed by these companies in Ireland, and we'd all hate to think that any of that was under threat. So um, I think there's a big threat coming. If it wasn't for the pandemic, the way I'd prepare for it, if I was the finance minister, I would say that this is, this is like a temporary boost to tax revenues, some of which is likely to be permanent. But the temporary bit, we're not going to spend. The permanent bit, we can spend. The temporary bit, we'll save. Um, unfortunately, we have to spend every penny that we've got at the moment. But the finance minister must start planning for these revenues to be lower in the future than they have been in the past. That, that last point really resonates with me, Chris, because if you think back on what happened in Ireland in the first seven or eight years of the 2000s, we had a property boom and we had massive growth in tax revenues on the back of that property boom. And the government took a view clearly that this, these tax windfalls from the property and construction sector were permanent rather than transient and they spent the money on the basis of a permanent tax base. And suddenly, when the construction sector collapsed, the tax take from the construction sector collapsed, and the government was left with this collapse in the tax base, and it had made all these spending commitments. And as any government or politician will tell you, the most difficult thing to do is to roll back on spending commitments. So we had this massive spending base, a collapsing tax base, and we ended up with a serious, serious fiscal problem. Um, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you totally 
that government should actually plan on the basis that these tax revenues are transient, okay? Um, and as you say, if it wasn't COVID times, we should be behaving but I, or, or reacting accordingly. But I also think there's a, a couple of important points here. It's a fact that Ireland does have concentration risk. You know, we're incredibly dependent on a small number of very large companies. And secondly, we neglect the SME sector in this country. So I think it is incumbent on policymakers here into the future to make sure that we can grow our SME sector um, to the greatest extent possible so that we reduce that concentration risk. Um, that is the subject of at least two more podcasts. So we might just return to it, Chris. I agree. And we are running out of time now, Jim. We could talk about this for a long time. And there's a, another aspect of the global tax debate, which experts are opining about um, at length this week. And that's the amazing IMF proposals that everybody's taxes should go up, personal taxes, uh, as well as corporate taxes, go up to uh, in some kind of gesture of solidarity, fiscal solidarity in the, in the wake of the pandemic. But we, we don't have time to talk about that today. Another addition to our future podcast agenda. Can I just say, I think it's I a think bizarre should... idea, Chris. Well, that, that's a good lead in to our ne next next podcast. And I suspect um, a discussion of the Irish personal tax system is, is, is also warranted, that that also has attracts an awful lot of expert opinion that frankly isn't. Um, and I think that we need we need to explore that in some detail to dispel a lot of myths about that. But let's leave it there for today. Um, we've run out of our usual time. Just say thanks, Jim. That was a great conversation. And I'll see you next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening. And we hope to have you on board again very soon.